This is episode number 157 with Dr. Anders Ericsson. Success 101 Podcast. This is your host, Jared Warren. In each episode, my goal is to bring you a new concept or idea to help you maximize your full potential. Thanks for joining me here today. Now let's kick things off. Hey guys, what's going on? I'm here in the Bahamas soaking up a little sun and R&R, but right now I'm coming to you at about 6 a.m. where there is no sun and I guess maybe no R&R. Anyway, I'm currently into minute eight of a 12-minute session here of my human charger experience. Yep, the sun in your pocket is firing me up even down here in the Bahamas, and I'm getting ready for an awesome day. So I can be at my best and my most productive self. For those of you listening in who haven't heard of the human charger, it really is what they claim, the sun in your pocket. This device admits a bright white with blue-infused spectrum of light, the same frequency as the sun. And when you put this device into your ears like an earbud on a 12-minute session, it gives you the same experience as looking directly into the sun. How, you may ask? When you put in the earbuds with the light I described, the light hits the photoreceptor proteins on your brain, just behind your optical nerves. The cool thing for you guys as faithful listeners is I've done the legwork to partner with the guys over at Valky, so you can pick up a pair of these at 20% off the regular price. Just head over to success101podcast.com forward slash human charger. Once there, enter the promo code at checkout of success101 for your 20% off. It's pretty awesome here. I have the human charger helping me to be optimal on this day, and I can already tell it's going to be amazing. Now let's get into the show. And the word incredible doesn't even describe what you guys are about to hear. Today, we're talking with Dr. Anders Ericsson on his incredible book, Peak, and his work behind how we can use the human brain to reach ultimate performance each day. And I'm here to tell you guys, this is a fascinating book that you must get your hands on. One of the big ideas we talk through here is the idea that talent is not always real, or at least not what people think it is. We talk a ton in this episode about intentional and deliberate practice and how to set up a system of habits so we can hit a higher level of peak performance at almost every task we do. If you guys are tuning in and have a strong desire to get better at any craft, task, or career, this episode is an absolute must to listen and share with others. If you love what you hear, I would be grateful for a five-star review on iTunes. Just open up iTunes and search for the Success 101 podcast and click the review button. You guys who do that, keep the mic on and keep this great thing running on into the future. And with that intro, here's my incredible interview with Dr. Anders Ericsson. Anders Ericsson, welcome to the Success 101 podcast. How are you doing today? Doing really well, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you. 
So excited to bring Anders Ericsson to you guys, who is really known in his world as the expert on experts. And for the high performance or peak performance world that I know many of you listening out there are in and involved with each day, I think you're just going to get so much out of his message. And uh, Anders, your book, Peak, was just one that spoke so much to me out of all the reading that I do out there just really understanding the concepts and the brains behind how we work and how you can dissect the ways that we work, which I know is not an easy task. It's uh, it's something that's fascinating to me, the way we work or sometimes don't work, depending on how we get in our own way. But let's go all the way back to the genesis of this, if you don't mind. I would love to know what peak truly means to you and why that was the title of everything you could have chosen, why that was the title you chose for this book. You know, I think I've always been very interested in objectively defined performance where you're looking at athletes and basically when they're, you know, if you're the winner on a basically a hundred yard dash, that's sort of an objective. It's not up to people making subjective judgments. And and I've always been very interested in, in basically people who can perform consistently at a much higher level. And that could be chess masters beating other people in chess consistently in tournaments. It could be surgeons who are actually having better outcomes with their patients than other surgeons. But essentially, that objective, reproducible way that somebody can actually deliver in a way that other people can't, that was sort of the starting point. And in some ways, referring that to the kind of peak, because there's also within individuals, perhaps a time period when you actually perform at it, at your highest level. And, and what we're finding here is that typically it takes you decades before you actually reach that very highest level in many domains. I had shared with you offline that many of the people who tune into this podcast, I've got a wide range of ages and really occupations or professions out there, but most of them have to do with some level of high stress, many times high anxiety, always seeking to be better, always having different disciplines and pressures applied to them. But you're going to have people in the professional athletics world, uh, both collegiate and professional athletics. You're going to have a wide range of coaches, mental coaches, sports coaches. You're going to have business executives. You're going to have people in the uh, medical community that deal with neuroscience and brain work. And all those people are tuning into the show many times because they know that my message that I'm bringing out is a message of peak performance And you had a quote in your book that I just love that I wanted to bring out to you today and get your thoughts on it. And for those of you that have read the book, you're probably going to remember this, but it's one of your early quotes. It says, why are some people so amazingly good at what they do? Anywhere you look from competitive sports and musical performance to science, medicine, and business, there always seems to be a few exceptional sorts who dazzle us with what they can do and how well they do it. And when we're confronted with such an exceptional person, we naturally tend to conclude that this person was born with something a little extra. He is so gifted, we say, or she has a real gift. But is that really so? And I love that question and and the way it ends there, because I think for so many of us out there and what I've read in your line of work is that so many of us are trying to find that magical easy button out there that doesn't exist. We're trying to find ways to excel and ways to advance when really there's no shortcut around it. And I know that your work really speaks to the actual work and the amount of many, many, many thousands of hours that have to go into practicing and uh, working around our trades to get better because there's just no shortcut. 
what is the biggest learning lesson for people in those occupations or those mindsets that I just mentioned that you can send today as far as how we're all going to get better uh, with that idea of no shortcuts in mind? I think what I would argue, and this is kind of the type of research that we have conducted now for you know several decades, where we actually identify people who are performing at this superior level, and then we try to really get inside their heads and and identify what is it that makes them different. And I think what we're finding again and again, it's not so much that there's anything basic physiological and we're accepting height, which is obviously something that you can't really change through training. But what we're finding is that the things that are setting apart the really outstanding individuals from you know the rest of us are things that are plausibly acquired And basically, these factors or abilities try to track as a function here of training. And and that's the reason why we're suggesting that if you want to be really good at something, uh, you should look for a teacher who's actually been able to bring other people from your level of performance to the level that you're aspiring to. And I think that is kind of the idea here, that for people to more or less individually, spontaneously improve is very unlikely and ineffective. You need to sort of draw on a lot of accumulated experience that these teachers have more or less either observed by themselves or by learned from other previous teachers. And by helping you now draw on what we know about effective training and the kinds of things that you need to develop. And and it Unfortunately, it takes a very long time for you to basically acquire those mental representations that we call them that seems to allow the experts to, when they're perceiving a situation, they're able to kind of identify the relevant things that they need to consider and are thereby able to come up with the superior decisions and actions that really set them apart. Yeah, and you're talking about the actions that set people apart. I know that you really dove straight into this. I loved your your first chapter that is, uh, I believe it's called The Gift, if I'm correct on that. I don't have it right here in front of me, but I believe the first chapter is called The Introduction or The Gift. And I just loved your point in there and something that I wish many people that I speak with in my you know line of work and coaching that I do is that we all have, to some level, we all have this gift that is when, that is inside of us and the adaptability of the human brain and the body, which we've the people who are excelling out there have taken advantage of that more than the rest of us. And we do have some limitations on us. You know, somebody that's five foot tall is probably not going to say, hey, all I have to do is work really hard. And I know I can make it into the, you know, the NBA or someone that's not very fast is probably not going to be a running back in the National Football League. But it is within those skill sets that we have and the things that within our physical limitations we can do. What you're saying is we all have gifts inside of us that many of us are just not utilizing to get to these higher levels of performance or this peak, as you call it. And I would really love to know from your line of work, as you said, doing this decades long, you've probably seen every you know instance under the sun of people giving excuses of why they're not excelling in this or performing in that. I would say most people, they're probably just giving more excuses as to why they can't get there and not really seeking out the fact that it's going to take so long to be able to do this and get, as you said in the book, your adaptation of your brain and body which other people are taking advantage of, these people just aren't doing it and they'd rather complain about it. They'd rather not
not work hard at it, then really go and seek out what it is that's going to make them better. Has that been your experience is that people are just really quick to give up on that, though they continue to say they want to be better and excel? Well, you know, I think there are different kinds of people that I've met uh, over the years. And, and I would say that the typical reaction when it comes to kind of a domain that everyone recognizes where skill may actually play a factor. So for example, like playing golf, I know a lot of people who kind of like going to the range and just whack uh, balls one after the other <laughs> as far as they can. But once you really start asking them, you know, what is it that you're really trying to be changing and improving on? You know, they, they don't know. They basically think that basically doing more of this is just going to make them better. And I think what we're finding here when you talk to teachers is this idea that if you're going to change something, you need to do something that could effectively change the way you're doing it. So remaining here with golf, what you find is that the really good golfers, they basically decide what they're trying to do with a given shot every time. So they can actually match you know, did I achieve the objectives that I wanted with this particular shot? You're actually trying to identify now things that you may be inconsistent with, and then you're actually working on those particular shots in order to improve uh, basically your consistency and your control. Now, one thing that I wanted to add here to what you were talking about, and, and I think in some ways it may be possibly setting us apart in our book a little bit from some other books who are arguing, you know, you can do whatever you want if you just kind of keep at it long enough. Because we're really trying to make our message consistent here with what we know about genes than the DNA. So the way I would argue here, you know, there's a lot of genes in your DNA that are basically not activated at a given time. So what we're arguing is that they're training activities, that if you engage in those particular training activities, you will activate particular genes that they in turn may actually change fundamental things about the anatomy and, and physiology. So, for example, if you're doing, you know, long distance running, if you actually push yourself in such a way that all your muscle fibers are coordinated, they will actually suck up so much of the oxygen that this will be a, a signal to genes to be activated that will now produce capillaries that will actually improve the access of blood to the muscles here that are working very hard. And over time, as you're working harder and, and developing your skill, you will actually have the heart change in a way to maximize now how much blood you can actually circulate. And even the diameters of arteries and other kinds of things will kind of adapt to the training demand that you induce but there are kind of natural chemical explanations for that you overload the system and the system is now activating genes to be able to respond to that training overload. Anders, I think you're referring to the point that's talking about homeostasis and a quote that I loved in your book. It said, this is the general pattern for how physical activity creates changes in the body. When a body system or certain muscles, the cardiovascular system or something else is stressed to the point that homeostasis can no longer be maintained the body responds with changes that are intended to reestablish homeostasis. And I think what you're saying there is if we push ourselves outside of our comfort zone, there are times where we're going to respond by overcompensating by these new stresses that are being put on us, and that's going to create a newer, higher level of this homeostasis that you're, re that you're referring to. 
Can you go into that a little bit further for our listeners who may not know how all of that works together when we have stress as applied? Right. So I guess a lot of people, when they go out jogging, you know, are kind of keeping a comfortable level. Now, that basically means that the body can kind of absorb this new activity that it's gotten used to it. So if you really want to change your ability to run, especially run faster, you really need to kind of push the body in such a way that you go outside of that normal range that can be easily accommodated by your current uh, sort of body. And one of the things that you do in order to increase speed if you're a long distance runner, this is interval training where you actually run as fast as you can for maybe 100 yards, and then you walk. So you constantly sort of pressure your body to get that outside of what it can actually easily do. And that then activates genes. And we have reason to believe that these genes will actually do their physiological work of building capillaries when you're actually resting. So there's this cycle of activating genes and then allowing enough time for the body to kind of respond to the stress. And then you have reached a new level of adaptation. And by this basically periodic stimulation and then adaptation, you can actually change. And I think that's how we can explain now why some people's bodies, if they've been training a lot, look fundamentally different from a normal person who has not been training. Oh, absolutely. And that's going to appeal a lot, what you're saying to the athletes or coaches that are listening in on this. But I think what you're describing there and those ideas as far as this, how do we get to this peak, that really can apply to everything that we do. And for a lot of people in the professional or in the business world, it would be working with your brains, uh, you know, as this idea of homeostasis in the body, but neuroplasticity or growing and stretching our brain. Uh, so much study through fMRI images and things like that lately over the just the last handful of years have shown us that our brain, though we get older and our brain does have shrink to it, uh, neurologists are saying that there is this neuroplasticity happening where the brain is elastic. We can teach it to grow and we can teach it to build new gray and white matter. But we're only going to do that through taking it past this comfort zone and pushing it on into, you know, not just reaching our full potential and getting there and staying there. And I'll, I'll dive into that in a second once we get somewhere for a period of years and stay there as you talk about your book. But not just to reach our potential, but to also build on it, to push past levels that we haven't done before, things that we didn't think were possible. And that's going to, you know, requires that challenging homeostasis or neuroplasticity for the brain. And I just call it getting out of your comfort zone, or as I tell my guys here, being comfortable, being very uncomfortable is the only way that you're going to grow. And I think most people are just not allowing themselves to force their brain or their body or any descriptor you want to put in there to adapt to these uncomfortable situations. And therefore, they get very complacent in their work. Well, you know, I think a lot of people, and I think that's natural, that you would want to do things that you're already good at. The thing, though, is that by just doing more of things that you're already good at, doesn't seem to lead to any kind of improvements. But if you pick out something where you only occasionally are able to do things, then you can actually focus in on actually trying not to improve that particular aspect. What you find is that by actually focusing in, and ideally if you have a teacher who can actually give you a task that allows you now to train that particular weakness that you have uncovered, you know, that now actually changes you and then as a result changes your ability to perform and that's at least how i view basically your professional life you know you it's going to be this 
constant search here for things that you can do a little bit better. And by finding things that you can already do, that now opens up the possibility here for finding the training task that will able allow you to stretch yourself to reach this higher level. Yeah, it's a great description. And I know much of what your book spoke to me about was visualizations, self-sabotage, negative talk, getting in our own way. All of those things are things that we deal with in the world of the listeners that are tuning into this podcast in some shape, form, or fashion. But you talk a lot about visualizations in our mind that replicate and represent situations, but also refer to those as mental representations. And those mental representations explain the differences in performances between the novice and then the experts, those that are climbing higher in their profession or in their performance. And there's one of the parts of the book that you mentioned where you talk about skills. When people get to a point where their skills are good enough or they think they're good enough and they tend to go on autopilot and reach this acceptable performance level, those people are oftentimes, though they're longer tenured in their trade or their practice or their business, those people are oftentimes worse in some areas of their performance than the people that have just been practicing it for a few years but haven't reached this quote-unquote acceptable performance to where they're not on autopilot. Can you speak to that a little bit and just how these mental representations that separate the the good from the great, how those play into your work? Yeah, you know, and I think one of the kind of more intriguing examples where people have found consistently that with more experience, uh, you actually perform worse. And that is uh, when it comes to listening to the heart or your lung sounds to identify pathological sounds. They've demonstrated here that general practitioners who are kind of doing this on a daily basis, they actually are less able to identify these pathological conditions with more time. So it's sort of like you're going downhill after you leave medical school. And I think it's interesting that actually just a weekend of working now with basically tape-recorded sounds of pathological problems where these doctors can get immediate feedback on what it really sounds like uh, when you have a certain kind of condition. They're able to up their performance uh, to the level that they had when they left uh, medical school. But I think that idea here is that if you don't know if you're correct, I mean, you're listening to a patient and if you miss this particular pathological condition, and it may not be discovered for another six months. And, and basically, there's no feedback loop that really allow you to effectively modify and, and be allowing you to identify these sounds that basically are diagnostic here of a problem that requires immediate attention. So Anders, are you saying, I think I heard you correctly there, where you said that basically more time spent in a profession or a trade, if you're not doing it deliberately, it will make you regress or go backwards in your progress, even though human nature tells us that the more time we spend in something, not with deliberate practice or anything considered, just the more time we spend in something, we will automatically become better. You're saying that's a little bit backwards if we're not being deliberate at that. Exactly. And I think basically what kind of happens when you're just keep doing what you have been doing and you're just doing more of it is that in some ways it becomes easier. And it's kind of interesting here that one of the things that I've seen in some domains is that although individuals with more experience are not being more accurate in their performance, they become more confident that they actually are doing a good job and that they're more accurate. So it's sort of a, kind of an intriguing paradox of sorts that the experts believe that they're correct, 
But you have to recognize that it is very difficult in these domains to get that kind of immediate feedback. And that's one of the things that we're trying out to provide where you can, instead of giving a new patient where nobody knows what the correct diagnosis is, you would actually be looking at libraries of old patients that with enough time, they've been able to diagnose the exact problem that they have. And now you can actually, in training, be able to sort of see a videotape of the interview with this patient. And then, you know, you can offer your diagnosis. And immediately, once you're offering that, you can get feedback about what the actual diagnosis was. So you can actually then improve and maybe try to identify what you might have overlooked or why you didn't consider that as a possibility or whatever. But that idea here that if you don't get that immediate feedback, and I guess there's a lot of professions where that feedback is difficult to obtain. It's very difficult to actually keep improving. And that's why we're trying to come up with ways to offer training that gives that immediate feedback for anybody who's willing now to put in the time to really try to improve their performance. This is also fascinating because it's so different than the way our culture today and the world around us today thinks about progress and thinks about putting time into making progress happen. One of the ideas that you talk about in the book goes right along with everything that we're saying here, which is about practice and about repetition. But you break it down even further to saying it can't just be repetition. We have to break that down into naive, purposeful and deliberate practice. And one of the other quotes that I love there is you, you talk about purposeful practice having several characteristics that set it apart from what we might call naive practice, which is essentially, as you mentioned a second ago, just doing something repeatedly and expecting that repetition alone will improve one's performance. So I think you would say by that in your work that naive practice is just doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting it to get better. Almost the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, maybe with bad habits and expecting it to be different, but just doing the same thing over and over and expecting it to get better with naive practice. And that just doesn't work. Whereas with purposeful and deliberate practice, we're going to see a lot different results from that. Right. So we basically argue that most people who are professionals or engage in activities like, you know, you go and play tennis games with your friends, you basically just perform and you try to do it as well as you can. But you're really not, you know, even able to kind of focus in on something that you can change. So if you have a problem with a volley, well, you miss a volley and the game continues. And then maybe an hour later, you're exactly in the same situation and you're not getting any better. So if you contrast that with you working now with a dedicated coach, now the coach can actually set you up so you're actually ready for the volleys and then make them increasingly more difficult and then eventually force you to run up to the net and do the volleys and then integrate it in the actual game. And then you're actually now focusing in. And the argument is that a couple of hours with a coach you know, will actually be more beneficial than five years of just playing where you have that unanticipated problem occurring. So, Anders, another part of your book that spoke to me along the lines of what you're describing there was what I mentioned a minute ago of the purposeful practice. And I wrote down uh, my notes here says uh, from the book, say purposeful practice has and there's four, I think, characteristics that you put with it here. And there might be a fifth. If I missed one, please let me know. But purposeful practice has well-defined specific goals. Obviously, that's important for many trades out there, not just in the athletic world or certain performance worlds, but you could break that down to really any profession out there. 
you need to have well-defined and specific goals. So that's back to that purposeful practice. Purposeful practice, you say, is focused, which I think goes right along in that line as well. But also purposeful practice involves feedback. And that's what you were just mentioning about having a coach and getting the feedback that we need versus just making the same habits over and over and over and wondering why we're not getting better on our own. And then, as we've already mentioned, purposeful practice requires getting out of one's comfort zone. And so I think the whole message around that part of your book just speaks so much to the idea that we can put in 10,000 hours, as you know, as Gladwell's book says, we can put in 10,000 hours to something, but if we don't have feedback, if we don't have a clear and specific goal, if it's not really pushing us out of our comfort zone, which when we're working on things by ourselves, we don't really tend to do because we're not disciplined enough many times to do that. And if we're not doing it in a focused way with well-defined specific goals, we are, I guess maybe you would say just spinning our wheels on a lot of uh, tasks and projects over a long period of time and just assuming we will get better by just sticking with it. And I don't think the sticking with it without all of this data is really serving us well if any of our people listening in on this are being coached that way. And I think that's very important for them to hear. Right. And I think what's kind of interesting here is even if, you by yourself are now kind of identifying things you want to improve. You don't know for sure that the training methods that you would think would work are really the ones that are the most effective. So it's really key here to work with a teacher who has all that knowledge about what other people have been using in order to reach uh, their high level of performance. And, And I guess just one example that I think is interesting In basketball, you would like to have a high jump so you can basically dunk the ball and other things. And you might think, you know, that in order to increase your ability here to jump high, you know, you should keep just jumping. What's interesting is that the more effective training seems to be two things, either jumping down from kind of a a box on the floor. When you're absorbing that power when you're actually hitting the floor, that seems to be a more effective stimulus to develop the muscles that allow you actually then to jump higher. Or you can basically use weights where you actually impose a lot of extra weight on your legs. And those types of training activities are more effective than actually training the jumping by itself. And there's very many different types of examples here of why intuition about what you should be doing are really not the best options. So it would be far better here to work with somebody with a better background in in teaching other people to improve. We've touched on a little bit of this so far that's been sprinkled in and what we've said so far, but I think it deserves being separated out on its own. Two things here. The first one would be understanding why trying things differently or adapting differently is better than just try harder. Because as you've mentioned, if we're just trying harder, but we're doing the wrong things, We could be going so far away from the goal at hand and getting so far away from it, even though we're spending many, many, many hours doing it. We just don't think about it that way in the middle of what we're trying to do. We just automatically, I think our brains are wired to just assume that, hey, if we just keep working and keep working, I mean, that's what we've been told since we were children, right, is if you just keep working at something, it will eventually stick. And I think that's why I was so compelled to your work is because that is not the case. And I think as we all get older, we start seeing that and realizing that some of the things that we've been doing and not realizing maybe they were bad habits or bad mindset or just wrong approach, it doesn't matter if you just keep doing it. It's not necessarily going to happen. 
And then I'd also love for you to speak on why innate talent is a myth. And, uh, and it goes back to us all having some form of a gifting and not just being born with that innate talent. So it kind of goes back to this idea that if we're looking at experts like a expert chess player and we present chess position, that expert chess player will very rapidly focus in on interesting areas and then be able to actually explore, you know, what kind of happens if you were to kind of make one move and then the opponent would be their make their best counter move. So it's sort of like they've developed these specialized skills for analyzing the situations so they will be able to pick now what would be the best move for a given position. And the same thing if you're playing football or soccer or something. What we find is that the more expert individuals, they're actually able to not just see where your opponent players are at the time, but where they're actually on the going so they can predict in the future, anticipate, you know, almost like a second's worth of information, which really allows them now to decide on much better actions that will now lead to much better consequences than somebody who is less skilled and really can't perceive all the relevant information to make, you know, the best judgment. And I think once you recognize that those kinds of ways of perceiving effectively all the relevant information, there is just a question, how do you develop that? But basically, once you look at what is it that these individuals do that develop these representations, and, and I guess we know fair about uh, a bit about in chess, where basically you can almost sort of simulate playing against world-class players by looking up games that world-class players had played against each other. And then you can actually, instead of looking up what the move they made, you can look at the position and try to figure out what would you do in that situation. And then you can compare the move that you selected with the move that actually the world-class chess player selected. So you can actually get that feedback, comparing yourself so you can now increasingly be more able to reproduce the kind of moves that the world-class players made by, in some ways, developing that mental representation that allows you to kind of figure out here what are the aspects that you need to think about in order to select the best move. So, Anders, we've talked a lot about your work as it relates to some of it being physical performance, some of it being mental performance, as you were just speaking about the chess games and the moves that were being made. How would you say your work speaks to how experts set themselves apart in management or leadership or breaking through certain mental barriers of, you know, just what I call self-sabotage or negative thinking to where they can really retrain the way they think about things and the way they retrain their brain to think in order to hit those higher levels of performance and higher levels of peak in more of the business world or the leadership world? What has been your experience with those individuals? I think what we find is that one thing that cuts across experts, even in sort of these sports and music and dance, is how much these mental representations play a role. And I guess I've been working a little bit with surgeons, and it seems like one of the things that really sets apart the very best surgeons is the amount of work that they put in even before they start the surgery. So they actually review all the information and then basically create in their mind, sort of going through mentally what this surgery would look like, and then 
prepare for any kind of possible problems that they would perceive. And then they actually do the surgery. And, and I guess I found talking to salespeople that one of the things that seems to be particularly salient for very successful salespeople is that they actually spend a lot of time thinking about the client and being able to identify now what is it that the client would basically want to know and being able now to identify the right kind of decision maker, but essentially building up an expectation here about how they would be able to do a kind of an appropriate presentation here for a given client. And then by noticing here how the client responds, they kind of get feedback about, was this appropriate? Could I possibly have done this some different way? But providing that kind of feedback loop of generating expectations and then executing and then finding that there's occasional mismatches. Now, once you find those mismatches, that will then be a potential target here for you basically working with yourself. And I found it interesting here that uh, several people have been talking about using videotapes as a way here of actually helping you kind of perform better in the same way that in sports, analyzing the videotapes from the last game, you know, that is incredibly important because it really allows individuals now to identify things that could have been done better or things that they were not able to predict or anticipate. And that goes to this mental representation that if you develop and refine your mental representation so you can actually anticipate what will happen, you're going to be in a much better situation to kind of execute. And I think that's true for, you know, people in the managing roles of actually being able now to, you know, sort of before they have meetings, you know, really thinking through how they would present something uh, to their working group and then actually being able to feed back. And I don't know, maybe even actually looking at videotape. And I know that a lot of people find looking at videotapes very aversive, but if you're really going to kind of improve what you're doing, it's going to be essential here that you have some document. And ideally, you could even show this videotape to a teacher who would then be able to kind of pinpoint things that you didn't notice that would then actually improve your mental representation so you can anticipate similar things in future meetings. Oh, absolutely. And that was that was such a great description there. And it goes back to the four components of purposeful practice, I believe, that I pulled from your book, which one of those in there is immediate feedback, which mainly talks about a coach or someone instructing you through what you're doing so that you have that feedback, you know what you're doing wrong, but also being able to watch yourself on film immediately after something happens or in a course of time. And then creating those mental representations to where you lock that away. And then you're able to turn that into purposeful practice the next time you go out and attempt whatever it is that you're trying to do with that specific goal, the intense focus, the frequent discomfort, which everyone wants to avoid. But then also that immediate feedback, which is so important from a coach or from a visual aid to really build on those mental representations. I just I love that so much. Uh, you also said in your book, remember, if your mind is wandering or you're relaxed and just having fun, you probably won't improve. <laughs> that was one of my favorite quotes from the book because it's so simple and yet so straightforward is that if we're really not being purposeful and we're really not implementing a lot of the things that we're talking about here, left to our own devices, I've always told people we are very fickle. Even as grown adult human beings, we are very fickle and very undisciplined in the things that we do. 
And, uh, and you hit the nail on the head there. If your mind is wandering or you're relaxed and just having fun, you probably won't improve. So your work has done so much for people in my field, in the performance field, in sports, and just it ripples out into so many ways that we can all get better and we can all peak. And as my podcast was founded on the areas of peak performance, how can we get better every day by introducing new concepts and ideas to help people reach their maximum potential? Because we're all realizing that it doesn't just happen on its own. But through your work, we're also realizing that it also doesn't just happen even with tons of hours in basically doing it the wrong way. We may still end up not making the progress that we wanted to make. So I just thank you so much for everything that you're doing and the guidance that you're giving us out there. One question I'd love to ask you as we get ready to wrap up the podcast here, and this is not a question I really ask very often to anybody, but I think for what you've learned over these decades of doing this work, it would be really interesting to get your take on this. If you could go back 30 years and you could look at the Anders Ericsson and the way you maybe thought about things or viewed things then and the way you uh, were able to relay that information to people, what would you go back and tell yourself 30 years ago that you could immediately start telling people about this idea of either peak or mental representation or any of what we've talked about today? What do you think you'd go back and tell yourself as the most important thing if you could say, you know, just one bit of advice that you've learned over those decades? One thing that I feel looking back that, you know, really illustrated what later became sort of the target of my research, I was doing the research on the memory training where we were successful here improving students' memory performance by pretty dramatic amounts. I was working with a senior uh, researcher who basically felt that I'd contributed enough to this project that I would be first author. So he said, now, now you basically write the paper. So I wrote a draft and he basically looked at it and said, well, you know, you need to think about this, this and this. And basically we kind of worked on this again and again. And I think I went through some 30, 40 revisions before I basically got to a point where he said, you know, this is close enough. I'm willing now to start working on it. At the time, I kind of felt that he was almost working against me here by I needed a lot of publications. But looking back, I think he forced me to actually learn how to do the writing myself. So he kind of spent all this time giving me feedback and I had to sort of problem solve. And I think building up those representations that allow me to now actually start thinking through how to write a paper and being able to address all the things that he was very, you know, very clear to him. That process of actually building up these mental representations that give you now the freedom of actually contributing and slowly improving your performance, I think that's really undervalued. And, and I believe that having this opportunity of him spending all this amount of time with me was one of the best things that could have happened to me. But there was times when I was actually in the process here where I felt you know, that he was almost being too difficult. But I think that really captures what I think is necessary to succeed. Yeah, it's always easier to see once you get to where you're going, you can look back on it. But the harder the journey, the more we learn from it, the more we grow. And there's so many people out there just in life situations where they say, look, if I hadn't gone through this seemingly terrible time in my life or these you know, years of my life where I thought, you know, this, this hardship was never going to end, I would not be the person I am today. And so you, they can almost say, as crazy as it sounds, they can say, I'm grateful 
for going through that, and it's made me the person I am today. So if we all had to, be, back to your quote, if we all had to do things that were easy and we weren't really putting much thought into it and we could just put it on auto, autopilot, as you say, boy, we sure wouldn't grow and get to uh, anywhere near where we all want to be. So it's the hardships and it's the difficulties and it's that trial that we go through that really shapes and grows us. So thank you so much for your work. I've just taken so much away from, uh, I knew I took a lot away from your book and I've just taken so much a lot, so much away from this podcast as well and look forward to getting it out to our listeners. Where can we steer more traffic your way in order to help people get peach in their hands or direct them to any of more of your work or website or anywhere that you've got more of your resources about your work? Where can we steer them to? Well, my co-author, Robert Poole, has a website which is the peak the book in one word dot com. And he's, I think, currently working on trying to make that even better uh, website. But I think that's probably the single best place to direct people. Well, Anders Erickson, thanks so much for your time. We are so grateful for spending it with us here on the Success 101 podcast. We wish you the best in your continued efforts to help everyone reach higher levels of peak and teach our brains to work for us and not against us as we put in deliberate practice. Thank you so much for your work and your time. And we will catch up with you again, hopefully on another episode in the future. Well, thank you so much. Hey guys, what an incredible episode with Dr. Anders Ericsson. I look forward to you guys commenting to me on how this is helping you to perform to your higher levels of peak performance. If you guys want to connect with me and my team, the best way to do that is to shoot an email to info at success101podcast.com or catch me in the world of social media on Facebook or Instagram under the name at success101podcast. As always, I look forward to seeing you guys on the next awesome episode of the Success 101 podcast. Until then. Success 101.